Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. College students want internship experience to boost their resume and learn the tricks of the trade. Cities in Pennsylvania could use an extra set of hands to help out around the office. Enter a new Penn State program that matches those two groups. It's called the Scholarship Sustainability and Civic Engagement Program. Eleven students participated this summer, and several Pennsylvania cities and their taxpayers reaped the benefits. To tell us about the program and some of the experiences, joining us today is Dr. Kim, Tim Kelsey, co-director of the Center for Economic and Community Development at Penn State. Dr. Kelsey, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, I'm happy, very happy to be here. Also joining us is Alexandra Source, a community environment and development major at Penn State. Ms. Source, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. If you have a question or a comment about uh, the program, maybe an idea or two, uh, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Alexandra, I'm going to start with you. You uh, were in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, this summer. What were you doing in McKees Rocks? So in McKees Rocks, um, my partner Aaron and I were creating a strategic plan for the community um, based on food access and nutrition. So McKees Rocks is a food desert, which in a nutshell means that the area, the community members do not have access to grocery stores um, at ease. So um, this results in people relying on corner stores or relying on processed foods as their main source of food um, which creates a lot of health problems. There are high rates of diabetes and hypertension in the area. So this whole entire chain effect um, is going to be worked on in the years to come at their community development center. So as interns, we created a strategic plan that um, recaps prior research done on this issue in the area, gives some background on the issue, um, outline some community stakeholders in the area and community organizations who are involved. And lastly, we give our own recommendations on ways to improve upon um, this issue in the area that's so pressing to so many families. You probably realize this, but uh, there are a lot of places in Pennsylvania, a lot of cities that uh, could be described as food deserts. So you and your partner, Aaron, uh, was it just the two of you, or were you working with a mentor? Who were you working with with the city? So we were working with the McKees Rocks Community Development Corporation. Um, Terrace Verchek is the director there, and he was largely our, I guess, bridge between McKees Rocks and um, Penn State. Um, so, yeah. Um, he was our main point of contact, and then obviously we got involved with other organizations as we, as the summer unraveled. So what did your research find? And then, of course, my next question is going to be, what were your recommendations? But let's talk about the research, because, again, this is something that a lot of municipalities, a lot of cities could use. So actually what we did, there was... The McKees Arts Community Development Corporation always has interns. They always have volunteers doing work on various issues. And um, there were very, we are in Pittsburgh, so there are, there's CMU, there's Pitt, and they also have um, development majors or programs. 
so oftentimes they will pull from there and people will volunteer involved in those programs. And I believe someone from CMU. Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, okay, yeah. Someone yeah. from Carnegie Mellon, students from Carnegie Mellon, or Pitt's Urban Study Program created a, um, basically like a research project um, outlining the issue in McKees Rock. So we used a lot of their information there to kind of continue the conversation to continue what has already been done in the area. Um, the statistics that go along with that are very, very hefty. They are in our plan, but in a nutshell, they speak on um, where the people in McKees Rocks get a lot of their food. So. Um, not a lot of one finding was that not a lot of people actually shop in McKees Rocks for their groceries. Um, a lot of people go to Kennedy Township, or they use convenience stores. This is extremely pressing because 40% of individuals in McKees Rocks do not have access to vehicles or transportation. Yeah, that would so, seem to be a real challenge if that be the case. So, what were your recommendations then? Um, so, our recommendations, and this is still working. We want to get as many voices as we can involved in this from the community. But so far, we've created a list of about five or six recommendations. Um, we w So there is an existing program that is coming to fruition in McKees Rocks um, as through the Fa Father Ryan Arts Center. It's a cooking class designed to get families um, cooking and eating dinner together as one. Again, this is called Family Table. Um, and we want to create incentives for people participating in programs like that. So not only are we helping, not only is this program helping to restore the family table aspect of actually sitting down together, it is also teaching families how to cook, because that's one thing that um, maybe I tend to forget um, is that some people simply don't know how to cook, so that's maybe the reason why they don't do it. Um, so, But what about the access to food? And then the next step is nutrition, because if you're buying your food at a corner store or a convenience store, you're probably not buying the most nutritious food. So, but what about the recommendations to help people gain access to, uh, you know, where they have uh, some more variety? So one initiative that was already made but kind of needs some more marketing and just a little bit more help on getting its feet on the ground is Fresh Corners. And this brings produce into corner stores. Um, so the Fresh Corners is, it's been in McKees Rocks for some time, but kind of just it hasn't really gained much interest, I think, because people are not sure what it is. But essentially it allows for residents to select fresh produce in convenience stores, and there are also meal cards there that teach them how to cook it. So... We think that some more marketing on this is going, could help the residents. Um, I, I wish that we could say we're going to create a grocery store right in the heart <laughs> of the food truck. But um, unfortunately, we are not. What about the, I don't know, the Penn State uh, 
grocery store right there on the corner. But, uh, hey, Alexandra, uh, you know, jump in with the conversation anytime you'd like. But I want to turn to uh, Dr. Tim Kelsey. He was the co-director. He is the co-director of the Center for Economic and Community Development at Penn State. Dr. Kelsey, you have to be impressed with uh, Alexandra and what she just described, the project that uh, she was involved with. Uh, are all your students uh, uh, that impressive with uh, some of the ideas they came up with? Um, absolutely. We have um, we have, student, we have 11 students, as you said, in five different communities, and the projects that they're doing vary quite a bit across the communities, but yet they're equally kind of in-depth. And uh, um, one of the things that's, that's important to me and kind of important to the program, and I think from a learning perspective for the students as well, is that we emphasize that the work that the students do and, and groups do in a community needs to be done in collaboration and partnership with a lot of other organizations. And so you know, across the board, our students um, are, are based w- typically with one uh, um, one organization. It might be the local government. It might be a nonprofit. Um, but they're working across multiple organizations, helping bring those together. And so one of the things I think that Alexandra undersold a little bit is a lot of the work that she and, and Aaron did was meeting with a variety of the different organizations in the McKees Rocks area and the, the broader Pittsburgh area, helping them understand what's going on in, in uh, McKees Rocks and helping kind of create, um, building up a partnership and collaboration as a way um, across the community can address these issues. All right, well, let's go back to uh, the basics, uh, Dr. Kelsey. The Scholarship Sustainability and Civic Engagement Program, what's the idea behind it? Um, the, the, the basic idea behind it is we wanted to create a, uh, um, an, a um, an environment, a program for students here at Penn State to have a, a very in-depth and um, you know, kind of scholarly um, based um, immersion experience in a community that um, our, our students are learning about community development or economic development or uh, civic engagement, but it's all it's it's fairly theoretical. And what the intent of the program is is after the students have that basic background and understanding of how communities work and how the economies work and and organizations work, to have them in a community actually working very closely with um, a, a couple community leaders on issues in that community, so that they can learn that um, the way things work at the local level don't necessarily always follow the way the textbook um, uh, outlines, and that oftentimes relationships and uh, um, you know, kind of facilitating and organizational skills and communication skills are critically important for making things happen. Um, so, so the, the, the way we, d- we develop that within this program is um, this is a, a three-semester-long program, including the, the summer. Um, in the spring, um, the students start in the program. There's an introductory class where uh, we do refresher and, and a little bit more in-depth on uh, community um, uh, skills for working at the community level and engagement and economic development. We uh, match them up with the community they'll be in during the summertime. They start uh, communicating and working with uh, the local partners that they'll be with during the summer, during the spring, developing a plan of work um, kind of based on the feedback and back and forth with those partners. Um, so when they go to the community in the summer, they they know exactly what they're going to do and the community partners know what they're going to do. And then at, at the end of the summer, in the fall, we have a final semester, um, a class where the students um, um, uh, come back together, they debrief and they, and they discuss across communities, the experience across the, um, across them so that they can draw kind of conclusions and kind of what works, what doesn't work, what are the similarities and differences between working in different communities. Um, 
Well, well let me bring let me bring Alexandra back into this because I'm curious just to follow up on something that uh, Dr. Kelsey said. Alexandra, w- between what you learned in the classroom and actually going out to McKee's Rocks and working with uh, your partner with uh, the city. By the way, is McKee's Rocks a city? Um, yes, it's it kind is. of like an, it's an urban neighborhood outside of Pittsburgh. Okay, uh, but working with the, the community leaders, the people involved in it, what was different, what opened your eyes between what you learned in the classroom and the actual hands-on experience? Well, one thing that I've learned through doing this is that you can plan and plan and plan as much as you want for an immersive experience like this, but sometime but you will meet people along the way you will learn more about the community and really get involved in your plan will change so i think that keeping an open mind and being adaptive is probably the most valuable skill that i can pass along to people um we went into this summer not really knowing exactly what our deliverable would be but then through a few weeks of meeting with people, we decided that a strategic plan would be the most helpful to the community. Um, And that was a little bit nerve-wracking those first couple weeks, not really knowing exactly what we were going to produce. But um, I think you just have to trust the process and understand that what you're meant to do will happen if you um, allow yourself to experience these things. Was there anything that really kind of surprised you when you got into this process? And I'm talking specifically about, uh, you know, the situation in McKee's Rocks with the lack of access to, uh, to food and to nutrition. Anything that uh, really surprised you said, huh, I wouldn't have expected that? Um, I guess just knowing how many families are actually struggling with this issue. Um, it's, it's actually really I don't know. It's just very sad to know that sometimes people are, their main meal of the day is processed food, or it is nothing in some cases. And to know that there are so many children struggling with this as well, um, I guess seeing it in action, seeing it being in the community, and not seeing any grocery stores is was something that was very pressing to me. Mm. Uh, Dr. Kelsey, this was just one example of uh, the projects that the students did this summer. What were some of the others? Um, in uh, the city of Lockhaven, which is the uh, county seat for Clinton County, um, the students working there were working with the uh, the Main Street program, which is a kind of local economic development program in the, the city to, um, to inventory vacant storefronts um, they're trying to, or they're putting together a list of uh, properties, business properties that would be available for businesses and others who want to expand in, in Lock Haven or who want to move to Lock Haven. So they've been, um, the students were working very closely with the city, doing a lot of um, kind of uh, doing a survey, essentially a walking survey of, of the community, identifying properties. In uh, the city of Philadelphia, the students there are focused on the uh, um, urban farming, which is a, a growing uh, field in uh, in Philadelphia. Well, um, a lot of students. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and what they were, the focus there was um, interviewing the urban farmers in the city to, to help put together a guide for people who are thinking about going into urban farming. What are the what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? What do they need to think through? So the students are, are doing interviews to, to develop that in um, the 
uh, in Huntington County, the, the students there were working with uh, the local economic development uh, agency and the uh, the county planning department to do some preliminary background work on a uh, a, a, a long trail. There's a, a, a national trail called the I think it's the 911 trail that is linking the different sites associated with uh, um, 911 as a long walking trail. And so they were looking at and working with uh, um, you know, planning data and, and landowners and the communities uh, to look at some of the siting issues of where that trail should go through uh, through Huntington County. In the city of Newcastle, which is uh, um, the county seat for Lawrence County, it's along the Ohio border, um, the two students there are working on two different projects. One was uh, working with the, uh, the city planning department, inventorying uh, um, the housing stock there. They have uh, some challenges in Newcastle with uh, um, abandoned housing and a declining population. And so the, the planning department wanted a nice GIS map that, that laid out the housing quality so they could identify parts of the city that were um, um, becoming derelict or where there might need to be some demolition of abandoned housing. So one of the students uh, essentially did, did a driving inventory uh, um, mapping all the houses in the county and then creating a GIS map that then is now being used uh, by the city. The, the other students working very closely with uh, um, a, a entrepreneurship, economic development, uh, outgrowth from the city and some of the community partners, uh, putting together a large grant proposal for the Appalachian Regional Commission that um, focuses on distressed communities. Um, so it would tell a wide variety of different communities that um, uh, issues that the community or that students are working on. Well, you know, the thing is that uh, and one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you about this uh, on on the program today is that the things you just listed there are so many boroughs, municipalities, uh, you know, townships, cities across the state that could use those services. But uh, under normal circumstances, they don't have the money to do that. So it's kind of a win-win in that uh, those municipalities get the services of the students. The taxpayers, in turn, get the, you know, the services of the students. And the students get to learn hands-on, get to learn what this is like in the real world, right? Absolutely. And you, you touched, touch, just touched on the two main goals of the program. One is obviously is an educational institution. We want to create a high-quality educational experience for our students. Equally important, we want to be, uh, be create value and be useful for the communities in which we're working. And so one of the things explicitly that we focused on is the projects, the work that the students do are identified by our community partners rather than by us here. Um, it needs to be work that the community feels is important. And so that's, that's what we're using as the focus, not you know, us here in state college saying, oh, the communities across the state need this. No, development, community building needs to come from the ground up. And so we're, we're working with the communities on their needs, not on what we think their needs are. Who are the students and by who? I don't mean specifically their names or anything, but uh, the backgrounds of, of the students, the majors, what are they looking to do in their careers? Um, a variety of different directions. Of the 11 students, we have five different majors represented. Um, about half of them are from the Community Environment Development major, which uh, Alexandria is um, a member of. Um, those students go on to work in uh, you know, corporate responsibility. We've got some graduates working in banks and working. Um, well, one's working for Cow, uh, Dow Chemical. Um, they work for economic environmental consulting firms, municipal county planning departments, or local government economic development agencies. There's a variety of of um, uh, kind of employers who work broadly on, on community economic development issues. Um, we have several students from the Environmental Resource Management Program, which focuses on environmental um, 
you know, kind of resource issues. Uh, some of those go on. To, uh, some of those alumni go on to work for. Um, um, uh, conservation districts and environmental consulting firms. We have a, a geography major. Uh, we have a health policy administration major. And we also have a, a material sciences uh, uh, major who's out of the College of Engineering. Uh, all one way or another are interested in the work that they do. How does it influence? How does it, how does it fit within needs within a community? Alexandra, you are a community environment and development major at Penn State. Uh, what do you want to do in the future? And did your experience this summer uh, change your thinking at all? Um, I would say this ex- my, the experience this summer did largely change what I want to do come May when I graduate. Um, I'm highly interested in tackling issues at the township or municipality level. Um, the focus within my major is largely on local development. So I think that that's something that I would like to pursue in the future. Um, I'm very open to whatever comes my way, which sounds kind of passive, but um, I think that's actually the beauty of my major is that it is very broad and that it's kind of the jack of all trades in the sense that I know that I can go many places with it and not close myself off to one option. Be idealistic for me for just a moment. Uh, After your experience this summer, your education, your major, uh, what would be best case scenario for you? What would you really like to accomplish? Hmm. Well, so I've become very attached to the McKees Drugs community. Um, I've become very attached to this issue of food access. Um, And I think overall it's made me realize that I'm interested in nutrition as an issue and that I can take this to any community because it is normally it is an issue in many other areas across PA as we said before. Hmm. Dr. Kelsey I'm curious uh, as you said the students all get together and share their experiences Uh, what are some of the stories that uh, you heard from the students this summer or maybe in past uh, past years of you know what they've accomplished uh, how their experiences change their thinking about how they look at the world well, this is the very first year we've run the program. Oh, it is. Okay. This is the pilot. What, what I've heard, I've visited all the students in the communities this summer, and, and what I've heard fairly consistently across them is um, similar to what you heard from Alexander, that you know, a, a sense up front, uh, first few weeks of you know, really trying to figure out what needs to be done and a little bit of uncomfortableness with that, but then kind of a taking the bull by the, by the horns and becoming engaged and, and taking ownership very actively and with, with excitement and, and pride of the work that they're doing with, uh, with the communities. One of the things we, we, we've tried to set up with this program is that this, the projects the students are responsible for. It's, it's not that they're following around the community partner, but for them to have ownership of that. And, and I, I know from experience teaching that um, and universities don't necessarily do a very good job of, of teaching uh, students how to deal with openness or ambiguity. You, know, you think of a typical homework assignment would be like, you know, write a five-page paper, you, you know, you've got to use at least two resources, and you know, basically the students are told exactly what, what to do and how to do that. What we try to do with this program, and, and, and I saw the students being able to do this summer, I'm really happy about that, is, is help them learn to become comfortable and actually eager about the ambiguity of real-world work. You know, your, your boss or the community says, we really need something to deal with nutrition issues here in the community. And, and it's a 
it's up to you and the community partners to decide what are you going to do. No one's going to tell you exactly what to do. And and so in in my from my perspective, I think one of the biggest successes that I've heard from the students is that that by and large they have been able to become comfortable with that uh, that openness and that and that that uncertainty and being able to step in and and put together very good plans and and very good uh, um, actions to address uh, those needs. And, and I think that skill is something that they're, they're going to carry very much into the professional life into the future. And it's something that uh, a lot of students uh, probably should be thinking about, uh, no matter what their major is and uh, their experiences. How is this different than uh, a typical internship? Um, what, what's very different with this is that we have the, we have a semester orientation up front, and then we have the debrief afterwards. With, the, with many or most internships, um, the students arrange those on their own. They might they might have a link from the department, but the students go out on their own. They, they, they don't have a lot of background preparation to understand what the organization is, what the needs are, what the community is, where they're going to work. And then when they're done, they don't. That when they come back, there's really not that much of a debrief where they are thinking about how did their experience fit with what they've learned in the classroom, how does it fit with this disciplinary kind of back, you know, um, yeah, background. But they also don't have the experience of talking with others who've had similar experiences to identify what's similar about their experiences and what's different. And one of the things, if you notice, when I listed the communities, we explicitly have very urban communities from Philadelphia to McKees Rocks, which is right, it borders Pittsburgh, to, to very rural Huntingdon and Lockhaven community. Uh, uh, so when the students in the fall, they will be able to talk and, and learn from each other's experiences in very different communities, which I, I think makes this much more rich than uh, and, and powerful than a, a regular kind of traditional internship. Dr. Tim Kelsey is co-director of the Center for Economic and Community Development at Penn State. Alexandra Source is a community environment and development major at Penn State. The program is called the Scholarship Sustainability Sustainability and Civic Engagement Program. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you very, very much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Summer Olympic Games open in Rio de Janeiro later this week. The Olympics is a spectacle that the world looks forward to every two years. More than 200 nations competing in peace and harmony is still the ideal of the Olympic Games. We often remember when that happened or was close to happening or when athletic history was made. But today the world is a different place. Politics, the threat of terrorism and the high cost of staging the Olympics often tarnish the ideals. Our guest today is an expert on the Olympic Games and their history. Dr. Mark Dyerson is professor of kinesiology at Penn State. He's also authored two books, Crafting Patriotism, America at the Olympic Games, and Making the American Team Sport, Culture, and the Olympic Experience. Dr. Dyerson, thank you very much for being with us today. Great to be with you. And uh, I should mention that uh, Dr. Dyerson, uh, during summer break, is not in State College or University Park, but uh, is uh, visiting uh, his father in Montana. So I, I have to say, I think you're our first guest coming on the program from Montana. How, how's the weather in Montana today? Uh, it's beautiful, sunny and, and warm and uh Great time of year in Montana. Yeah, sounds like it. All right, I want to take you back a little bit. One of my favorite, oh, I'd say it is my favorite memory in sports, maybe even in my life, was the 1980 U.S. Olympic uh, hockey team beating the Soviet Union in uh, the semifinals, then going on to beat Finland and winning the gold medal. 
I think that uh, the Associated Press called it the top sports moment of the the 20th century. I, I don't know. I wonder whether we'll ever have moments like that again. What do you think? Well, that is certainly an iconic moment in Olympic history and in American history. Uh, but I think, you know, the Olympics always holds out the potential to have those kinds of moments because it's the one global stage on which the U.S. truly competes and has competed since the first modern Olympics in, in 1896. We uh, only dabble in international soccer and World Cup soccer, but for for the United States, when we think of dramas with other nations, what other place than the Olympics can we have those kinds of moments? You know, I don't even know what the word is. Cachet seems like it's an understatement, but it doesn't seem like the Olympics have that kind of attraction or is anticipated as much as it was, say, in 1980. And uh, the world was uh, had its own set of issues in 1980. What do you think as someone now? I know that, you know, you're a historian when it comes to the Olympics. You study this very closely. But does the world look forward to it as much as it used to? Yeah, I think they do. Now, one of the differences from 1980 is that the Cold War no longer um, is is roaring as it once was. So from that period, from the 1950s through the 1980s, before the Soviet Union collapsed, there was this backdrop narrative, the U.S. against the Soviet Union, uh, the U.S.'s allies against the Eastern Bloc that helped frame things. And we are certainly in a different world geopolitically yeah ISIS but, doesn't... you know the u.s has other rivals now it's china in some ways in the metal count and you know there are other nations to play the role of villain the u.s has always made certain nations into allies and others into villains uh at the olympic games and the olympics remain with world cup soccer uh the most popular shared events around the globe uh if you look at the tv ratings what do people around the world do more than anything else? They watch TV. What are their two favorite uh, television programs, World Cup soccer and the Olympic Games? And in the U.S., it's no contest. Americans watch a lot more Olympics than they watch World Cup soccer, in spite of some of the changes in the past few years in regards to a bigger audience for soccer. And, of course, the Super Bowl here in, in the United States as well. But, Absolutely. Um, but that, that doesn't play in the rest of the world. So the Super Bowl is a parochial event. It's, it's our biggest shared experience as Americans. When we share an experience with the world, the Olympics is number one. Mm. Um, and when you're talking about uh, the United States and the Soviet Union involved in the Cold War, uh, you know, it, 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 to a lesser degree, uh, we had uh, we meeting the United States had uh, uh, had rivalries with like East Germany, for example, in uh, in swimming. Uh, especially women swimming, and, and some of the other communist countries. That uh, So there was that communism versus capitalism thing. ISIS doesn't have an Olympic team, so it is a little bit different. L the big question I guess I have is, you know, with some of those things I listed, the high cost of uh, putting on uh, the, the games, the threat of terrorism, the politics that seems to always go into it, um, what is the role of the Olympics in today's world? 
Well, I think the Olympics is sort of a, a showcase for a lot of these issues. There, there have been people who have talked historically, uh, like Avery Brundage, who was an American who served as the uh, longtime president of the International Olympic Committee from the 1950s through the 1980s, who have imagined that sport and politics live in separate universes and shouldn't intrude on one another. But historically, that's just not accurate. Uh, sport is, is, is a part of political relations between nations, and the fact that Brundage and other members of the IOC organize the Olympics by nations, uh, do medal ceremonies and national anthems means you're always going to have those inherent political controversies involved in the games. The, the accusation that the Olympics are too expensive, that they cost too much, which certainly uh, has a lot of merit, I think, in the 21st century, is not new either. Uh, that kind of rhetoric about the Olympics has been around uh, from the beginning. It's always cost a lot for a host nation to stage these affairs. So you, you can see complaints about gigantism and over-commercialization uh, in uh, 1920 as, as well as in 2016. Uh, terrorism is in some ways a new threat, but remember that the Olympics went to some pretty dangerous places in the past. The controversy over Berlin in 1936, the so-called Nazi Olympics, and whether or not the U.S. and other nations and other nations should boycott, uh, you know, scares about the safety of teams and things like that. That's been around for quite a while too. You know, the, the 36 Olympics that you mentioned. Um, one of the most memorable Olympics because, and it's, it's often pointed out to Jesse Owens, uh, winning gold medals with Hitler uh, looking on, and Hitler, of course, uh, ahead of time talked about his Aryan race and how they were superior and all that, and uh, an African-American that uh, w was the athlete who was remembered. So in a lot of ways, that those Olympic Games in 1936 prove that, you know, there is a relationship with politics, but it also can be done on the, the playing field without the guns being fired. Right. And, you know, th there's a very interesting reading of the 1936 games that's different in the United States than other places. We remember Jesse Owens. We remember some of the other African-American athletes who medaled, uh, including a native Pennsylvanian uh, a guy named John Woodruff from the University of Pittsburgh who won gold in the 1800 meters. We remember that in some ways, and we think that given those victories, the U.S. must have triumphed over Germany in the 1936 Olympics. The fact of the matter is if you looked in the medal count, the way it was interpreted in Germany, Germany for the first time won more medals than the United States. Uh, Japan, actually, another fascist nation, won more medals than Great Britain. And Italy, a third fascist nation, bested France. So the European view was quite a bit different than the American view. They insisted fascism and those racial ideologies had won. We insisted democracy and equality had won. And then you have the irony that while Owens was a national hero, he could not have run uh, meets in the American South in that era. So uh, in a United States where racial segregation was still written into law, his is a fascinating story. 
You just ruined the whole story for me. You know that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that is interesting. That is interesting. I ruined the movie Race for my kids, too. They swore they'll never go to another sports movie because they loved it, and I had to come out and tell them everything that was wrong. They just told me, you're a better old man. Give it up. <laughs> it, by the way, if you have a question or a comment for Dr. Mark Dyerson talking about the Olympic Games, he's an expert in the history of the Olympics, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to Smart talk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. I want to get back to a little bit to the cost of staging the Olympic Games. Uh, you know, many times uh, there, you know, different cities, different nations have uh, different motivations. Uh, one you don't hear as much about anymore, you did at one time, is, you know, we'll build this and then after the, the games are over, we'll get all kinds of tourists. People will be visiting all the time. We'll make all kinds of money. It will be like an a, a economic development tool. Has that ever happened? And is that one of the reasons we don't hear about it so much? Well, the claims certainly happen all the time, right? But the realities are somewhat different. Uh, whether or not the Olympics have ever truly been an economic engine that have, you know, enriched communities, I think is much more debatable. Most economists would tell you at best they're zero-sum games, and they tend to enrich uh, those who are already doing well uh, versus those who uh, uh, are struggling in the economic ladder. Certain groups, certain people make money on an Olympics. That's been true in the United States and Los Angeles or Atlanta or Salt Lake City, uh, but it doesn't necessarily enrich the entire community. Uh, and I think in the, de in, the, in the developed world, particularly in the liberal West, where taxpayers have had a say, um, it's harder to make that case. You know, the bill does come home to roost. And it kind of started in Colorado in the 1970s when Denver got uh, the Winter Olympic bid for 1976, and then uh, the voters of Colorado rejected any public support, and Denver had to give it back, and Innsbruck, Austria took over. So um, in communities where there's a lot of public input, I think it's much harder to stage the Olympics these days. It's where... Uh, without much input from the citizenry, a nation can spend $50 billion. Uh, Russia in 2014, China in uh, 2008, and whatever they'll spend on the Beijing Winter Games uh, in the future, that seems to be the trend at the moment. Mm. And, you know, you, you mentioned Innsbruck in 76. I'm sure Innsbruck, and I have seen pictures and read stories about the, the, the town, the region itself. It's a beautiful place. But other than the Olympics, what can most Americans uh, tell you about Innsbruck, Austria? Sochi, uh, yeah. Sochi is another situation where even before the Olympics, there were so many people who had never heard of Sochi. And now I don't know whether they want to or not. So you wonder about uh, whether there are long-lasting uh, uh, impacts or not. Right. You, you really do in some ways. And you wonder about the gigantic cost. 
One of the secrets to L.A. in 1984 that people forget, they talk a lot about it was a new model for the Olympics, you know, after the huge cost overruns in Montreal in 1976 and Munich in 72 and Mexico City in 68, uh, the fact part of the commercialization was that Peter Uberoth and the L.A. leaders commercialized the L.A. games and sold it to corporate interests to help balance the budget, and that worked. Something people don't remember, though, is that L.A. had all of its facilities already built. So they didn't have to lay out huge amounts of money for stadiums. They have the same stadium they used in 1932 for the Olympics, the L.A. Coliseum. They built a velodrome and a couple of other sites, but that's about it. So if you're a city with voters and taxpayers and you've got your facilities built, the Olympics might be a good gamble. But building new facilities is horrifically expensive. Mm. So uh, let's talk about that. Uh, well, before we do, before we talk about Rio, I want to talk a little bit about Sochi. We were talking about motivation to host the games. Yeah. Putin, Vladimir Putin, uh, in uh, 2014, uh, was putting a lot of stock in the Olympic Games, the Winter Olympic Games in Sochi. Uh, you, you got the sense that uh, he wanted to show off his nation. Didn't exactly work out that way because there were a lot of negatives surrounding the Sochi Games as far as infrastructure goes. The games themselves went went well, but uh, as, as far as all the news, the negative news that came out, Sochi, I don't know if you would call that a success or not. Well, I mean, I, once again, it depends on perspective. And, you know, I'm sure Vladimir Putin uh, tells certain news outlets in, in Russia to consider it a, a success. But that's the risk that particularly authoritarian regimes take when they stage an Olympic Games, that the world's going to come, the world press corps is going to be there, and if it doesn't go well, you might get a lot of criticism. So as a, it's a dangerous showcase, I think. Beijing got some good press in 2008, but some really negative press about pollution, about human rights issues and things like that. The same with Sochi in 2014. You know, got some good press, but, you know, an awful lot of bad press about internal things in Russia and environmental problems and cost overruns. So uh, any authoritarian regime, any, any liberal regime that's going to put on Olympic Games has to remember it can't control when the world press comes the kinds of stories and narratives that are going to come out. Germany in 36 is a fascinating example. A lot of the press corps went away thinking the new Germany, Hitler's regime worked, but there was a lot of dissent there, too, where people probe more deeply into things. So a mixed bag there. Well, then that takes us to Rio. Uh, I don't ever remember as much pre-Olympic Games negative stories as there are right now about Rio. I mean, you're actually talking about uh, the health of the athletes. Um, you know, again, you're talking about security. And, you know, it appears that the, they have some major, major security uh, issues. I want to say that they, they really have uh, looked into security and are prepared. But the health of the athletes, the cost overruns, the, the venues not being finished. You know, as an historian, can you remember as much negative as we've seen with Rio? Well, I think that 
On single issues, yes. So in terms of worries about endemic diseases, uh, remember that in 1920 when the Olympics are in Antwerp, Belgium, Europe has just suffered a huge influenza plague, the, the Great Plague of 1919. And so there's worry in the United States and other places about going to, to Belgium, uh, to this port city, uh, where you know influenza in the wake of World War One has just ravaged uh, uh, Europe uh, and the United States, but we did it anyway. Um, certainly, worries about concerns about security uh, were there in in Sochi, uh, in Beijing, and and other places. And even when the U.S. hosts the Olympics, security since Munich in '72 has always been a huge worry. Um, economically, venues not being finished. Think Athens 2004. Great, great uh, worry there by the IOC that, that Greece just would not be ready. But Rio seems to be the perfect storm of all of these things coming together at the same time. Uh, and, you know, Brazil's economy, Brazil politically is in chaos right now. So, in many ways, I, I do feel quite uh, bad for Brazil that staged the 2014 World Cup and now a 2016 Olympics, sort of wanting to showcase itself as a rising star in the world, and it's just faced calamity after calamity, and would seem to have, uh, in some ways, overstretched its resources to to be the first South American nation to host an Olympic Games. Uh, some of the soccer matches uh, are going on today, so uh, the Olympics have already actually started. The opening ceremonies are Friday, though. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, our, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Mark Dyerson, professor of kinesiology at Penn State. He's the author of two books on the Olympics, considered an expert on the Olympics and Olympic history. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Let's talk a little bit about Olympic history. I talked about my favorite moment with uh, the American uh, hockey team beating the Soviets, winning the gold medal in 1980. Uh, you've obviously written about it, done a lot of research on this. Do you have a favorite moment, a favorite Olympic moment? I do, but before I, t I tell you that, let me ask you a trick question I ask my students. Okay. Uh, did you watch that 1980 uh, hockey match, not the final, but the, the, the semifinal game in which the uh, United States beat the Soviet Union live on television? No, I did not. And uh, you see, I can tell you exactly what happened. I worked at a radio station at that time and saw what the final score was via the Associated Press and then had to watch it on tape delay like everyone else that night. Right, because it wasn't, fascinatingly, it wasn't actually broadcast live. That pivotal game, the true miracle on ice game, Al Michaels, you know, shouts at the end, uh, weren't actually, could you imagine that today? Everything's no. live on TV. I've met more people who saw that game live who are my age and, and, and younger, and I have to sadly break the news to them that unless they were in Lake Placid in the sands, they could not have seen it live because it was only broadcast on tape delay, and a lot of us knew the score. We had heard it earlier in the day and then watched it that evening. You know, it, I have lots of favorite moments. Uh, you know, I'm of the era I started watching the Olympics 
Olympic Games as a kid in the 1960s. And so I think I, I have memories of Mexico City uh, from a black and white television, Bob Beeman's long jump, um, a host of other events, and, you know, the black power salutes by Tommy Smith and John Carlos that shocked people in the United States and around the world. So I have very powerful memories of those. They are among my most favorite moments. Uh, and I think important in reminding us that the Olympics is always political, not just for nations, but sometimes for individuals, minority groups, trying to make their uh, voices heard uh, and shock the mainstream into doing things differently. Uh, Kathy Freeman in uh, Sydney in 2000, the Aboriginal runner, was another favorite moment. Um, so it's a very interesting global event. You know, uh, just yesterday I saw that uh, San Jose State is honoring uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith with the statue of them uh, standing making the Black Power salute on their campus. Uh, so th- that that's happening uh, just this week. You know, there also there's always controversies uh, involving the the competition itself. You were talking about 68. One of the biggest ones I remember was uh, 72, the basketball team, the men's basketball team, where the officials put time on the clock against uh, when when the Americans were playing the Soviet Union, gave them uh, several opportunities, several opportunities to win the game, the Soviets, that is, and they did. So, you know, that was one of the, the, the most controversial decisions there. Often you had uh, with some of the, the sports where judges were involved, where uh, the judges from certain nations would have different uh, scores than than the other nations. So there's always some controversy on the on the playing field as well. But it's it's I don't know. I take that kind of controversy over uh, people fighting politically or, you know, when we're talking about something like security, uh, then than those things. Right. I, I would say those controversies are fascinating. Sometimes they're political. In the case of the figure skating judges, it was the Eastern Bloc uh, against the rest of the world. So some fascinating dichotomies there. Uh, but those are preferable to the, the more brutal insertions of politics into the Olympics, the worst ever being at Munich in 1972 with the terrorist attack on Israeli athletes. Or, you know, as has continued sort of under the radar, there have been some uh, Islamic athletes who have refused to compete against Israeli athletes uh, in the 21st century in Olympic uh, matches. So I far prefer the uh, the judging controversies or a few seconds on the clock in a basketball game to some of these other controversies. And, of course, the controversy, one of the controversies going into uh, these Olympic Games uh, are the Russians and, and doping. And I, when I mentioned the East German uh, women's swimming team, that was always one of the accusations against them is that uh, uh, they were using, uh, they need a little help, put it that way. We only have about 45 seconds left. Uh, Dr. Dyers, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule in Montana. Uh, if you could... Tell our listeners what you'll be looking for, what you'll be looking for in these Olympic Games. What would it be? Well, one thing I always watch for in the opening ceremony is uh, whether or not the U.S. uh, dips the flag or not and whether or not the TV commentators are going to say when the U.S. doesn't and they won't that this is an old tradition that dates back to 1908 and Americans have never dipped their flag at the Olympic Games, which is not true. 
we alternately dipped and didn't dip from 1908 till 1932. And then with Hitler, we established the tradition. Thereafter, we have not dipped the flag. We didn't dip it to Hitler. But we did sometimes dip and not dip before. So I'll watch and see if the commentators, as usual, get it wrong uh, <laughs> and, and repeat this old American myth, well, which we cherish. Dr. Dyerson, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, Penn Live has done an investigation into nursing homes in Pennsylvania.